0: All right, let's open up our our Bibles to uh, Revelation 16. And if you're visiting with us, if it's your first time here, you're just walking in and you're like, oh wow, it's one of those churches, they're in Revelation, this is going to be awesome. Uh, It actually is going to be awesome, not because I'm an awesome preacher, but because Revelation is awesome. It's a fantastic book that is generally misunderstood by most teachers and preachers out there. And I'm not the one that has all the answers. There is a long tradition of biblical scholars who have rightly interpreted this book and have been helping us walk our way through it. So make your way over to Revelation chapter 16, we're going to look at a vision it's an important vision for us, and what this vision is going to help us to do is it's actually going to help us address a fundamental problem that I think all of us experience at different times in our life. It's going to address a problem which is the source of much of our frustration, dissatisfaction, discontent, and lack of joy. It's going to address the problem of entitlement as well as a misunderstanding that most people have about what it is that we actually deserve. Now, how are we gonna get that out of Revelation 16? Well, I think it'll be pretty clear as we work our way through it, but, but let me put a finer point on this before we start reading. There are certainly times in your life when you deserve better than what you get, right? In particular or specific relationships, right? It's possible that, You might be, for example, a faithful and hardworking employee. You go the extra mile. You do everything that you're supposed to and more, but maybe your boss is a total jerk who doesn't respect you, who doesn't pay you what you are worth or who exploits you or who mistreats you. In that specific situation, you deserve more than what you're getting. You deserve better. It's totally appropriate. Even Jesus says a, a worker is worthy of his wages. So there are situations in which we rightly understand, hey, I deserve better but there is a whole host of times when we think we deserve better than we actually do because of a sense of entitlement or self-righteousness. And this problem, this misunderstanding of what we deserve, this tendency for us to think that we deserve better when we don't universally translates into every individual's understanding of God to a person at least at some point in our lives, we believe that God owes us and that God owes us more or better. But there is one principle that I think will help us to sort of reorient ourselves and can actually lead us to a deeper sense of joy and thanksgiving. All of our sermons here, whether I'm preaching or someone else's, all of our sermons uh, are, are offered to you with one Clear. At least we attempt it to be clear Summary of the principle we want you to grasp from the text So if there is one thing that you take away from this It is this principle And that is that we all deserve hell That means you That means me There is no exception Hell is not for the really bad guy out there that you look at With, with a horrified look on your face Because you've, you've figured out some of the things that, that he's done We all deserve hell, and the more we can wrap our brains and our hearts around what it is that we deserve, the more suited we are for true joy, strength, and contentment in this life as we lead into the next. All right, so that's what I want us to take away. When we're looking at Revelation 16, let me just give you a brief Revelation recap if you're new here or if you just want a refresher. The book of Revelation is essentially a a series of visions It's vision after vision after vision, and some of the visions are very different from one another, though they all push the same basic theme and narrative. Some of the visions are very similar to one another. We read earlier a vision that involved seven trumpets of warning. We read about uh, seven seals before that that were broken that led to an unfolding of God's plan. And now we're looking at a, a revelation of seven bowls of wrath that are poured out, And the theme of this book that runs through all of the visions, the theme that drives this whole last book of our Bibles is the victory of Jesus and his church over the devil and the world. That's the theme that pushes this whole thing. The purpose of the book, it was written to Christians who are suffering, who need encouragement, who need to be strengthened because they live in a world that is dark and hostile to our faith. And here in Revelation 16:1 the vision begins by saying then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God This is a vision or a picture of the last day The last day of life as we know it on this planet. The last day of life as it has always been. It's the final judgment. It is when Christ returns and God's patience comes to an end after century, after century, after century of patiently calling people to accept his gracious offer of forgiveness. His patience runs out and judgment comes. The people of God are vindicated, the innocent are vindicated, and the wicked will be punished. That's what we're seeing here. God's wrath poured out in perfect measure in the end. And we have seven angels that are pouring out God's wrath via seven different bowls. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at these seven angels and their seven bowls of wrath, and we're going to try to move through it quick enough so that we have time at the end to focus on this principle that is in our chapter that applies to us today with an understanding of what we deserve, but also of what we have in Christ our Savior. So... First, we have the the first angel, right, who comes forth, it says, from the temple in the vision that started in the last chapter. There's this vision, we see a temple and the angels come out from the Holy of Holies, uh, where the high priest would once a year enter in to make sacrifice for sins in the Old Testament. And we have this first angel and first bowl in verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So the, the, the first angel comes out, and when the wrath of God is, is poured out on the people, it's specifically here referencing those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. Now, we've already covered this, but let me just be really clear here, and, but brief. The mark of the beast is not the vaccine. See, you laugh at that because you're good people and you're smart people. But there are dangerous people out there that actually push that narrative. And there are people in our church who experience people pushing that idea on them from outside of this church. It's not the vaccine, it's not a microchip that gets implanted under your skin. It's not a tattoo on your hand, I hope not. It is, it is a picture of the alignment of a person's heart with the beast. The mark of the beast is simply a way of saying there are people who are in league with the devil and with his operations through wickedness in the world. Just like there are people who have the mark of God in the book of Revelation on their forehead and on their hands. These aren't physical marks They're just ways of spiritually identifying that there are some who follow Christ and others who follow the devil. The wrath of God is coming against the world, the unrighteous, those who have rejected the Savior and instead find themselves in league with Satan. And this wrath is seen in in, in the context of of boils and and, and, and affliction and, and sickness. It's not that these people are against Christians and therefore they're going to suffer. That's true. The, the world is against Christianity, but it's, it's a problem really because they are fundamentally against Christ. And this is why the wrath of God is coming. His patience has run out. So the first angel is manifested and he pours out this wrath. And people who worship the beast and, and uh, had that mark, it afflicts them. Then the second angel shows up and he pours out, verse 3, he pours out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. So the first angel pours out his bowl of wrath on the earth, the second on the sea. And what happens? The sea dies. In fact, it turns into rotten, black corpse blood. It's a horrifying picture. And in this description, this vision of the end when God's judgment brings a destructive end to the world and to all unrighteousness, the sea no longer gives life. So the picture is like, wow, uh, the, the sea is now dead, uh, something that we rely upon for fish, for food, right? The, so much of the world relies on the ocean for nourishment. We presume upon it. We, we sort of feel entitled to it, really. It's, it's there for us to fish, and now it's dead. There is no life, and that means that our lives are coming to an end as human beings. The second angel pours out this wrath on the whole ocean. In previous visions, we've seen that God's judgment is temporally and partially manifested in the world, right? So that God's, you can see God's wrath and his judgment in short form, in in specific situations. And that's why in those visions, it says things like, well, a third of the ocean was impacted. A third of the ocean was affected. But here it's all of it. The ocean stops giving life. Then the third angel, in verses four through seven, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, and they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is the third angel. And what he does is he pours out his bowl of wrath onto the bodies of water on land, lakes, rivers, springs, streams. You get the idea. What are those? This is the fresh water that we drink. This is fresh water that the world relies upon. You can't live without water. And now the water is dried up. What's happening is at the end, it is the end of God's patience. It is the end of his common grace. He is good to all, both the moral and the immoral, the religious and the irreligious. God is good to everyone, isn't he? Good, generous. He is above that. He, He is beyond that. It's a grace that is common to all people, yet undeserved. And in the end, it all Stops These gifts Evaporate and The fact that these waters Are turning to blood if, you're re- if you read the Bible a lot If you grew up in church And you know the stories It should draw your attention Back to the exodus Right when Israel was enslaved In Egypt And God sent Moses to go in And to confront Pharaoh And say you better let God's people go Because if you don't Judgment's going to come of course, Pharaoh does not, he hardens his heart and judgment after judgment falls upon Egypt and one of those judgments is that their rivers turned to blood. You read about that in Exodus chapter seven, verse 19, for example, but there's a summary of this as well in Psalm 78, verse 44, you can just listen. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. His patience runs out at the appropriate time and judgment commences. Now, in the midst of this, this third angel pouring out this bowl of God's wrath, there is an interlude, like an interruption. It's an interruption of praise. And we've seen this before in other visions. It's like in the midst of the vision that is showing us the terrifying reality of the holiness of God against sinful humanity. In the midst of this terrifying, overwhelming picture, angels and or the people of God can't help but stop to praise God for who He is in His character and what He does in His works. It's like they, they have to stop not only to praise God, but also it brings to light maybe some clarity to something that we might be wondering about. This is so dark and terrifying and harsh as God overdoing it. You ever feel like God's a little harsh? I do. I read the Bible. I read the Old Testament. I read the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira lying to the church. Lying about, yeah, man, we sold our house and we're going to give all the money to the church. What's up, church? It's pretty generous of us, isn't it? We should probably have some pews with our names on it. You know how people do. And they're lying and they drop dead on the spot for lying to the spirit and the church. See, that seems a little harsh to me. I read something like that, and I'm like, ooh, God, man, are you mad? (laughs) What's going on? And the problem, the problem is found in what I expect from God and what I think we are owed. I don't get what we actually deserve in that moment. And this song of praise helps to bring clarity, to dispel our notions of what we think we deserve so that we actually understand that God is always just. Now, we're going to come back to that. I want us to button up all of our time together by looking at this song of praise in verses five, six, and seven. There's a fourth angel in verses eight and nine. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory The fourth angel, right, so it's been land, it's been sea, it's been water, and now the sun. All these things that we need for life, and now the sun. In the end, God's judgment is depicted as the very thing that we rely on to keep our planet in check is now no longer giving life but bringing forth death. It's burning people up. It becomes an instrument instead of life. It becomes an instrument of judgment. And the result, the response, is not, oh, Lord, I see it now. I'm so sorry. Will you please have mercy? The, the, the consequence of this is not that people are repentant. It's a middle finger raised to the sky. That's the response. It is cursing and bitterness against God because we think we deserve better. We didn't get enough time. He didn't give us enough, enough opportunities. Instead of repenting, we continue rejecting. That's the response of people in the end when they see the wrath of God coming. Now, you might be, you might be wondering at this point, like, hang on a second. If the sun is, like, setting people on fire... How is this? How are are not the people of God also getting caught on fire? Why aren't they bursting into flames like vampires in the sunlight? Like I don't understand why this isn't impacting Christians, or is it impacting Christians? And so let me just briefly say that these are apocalyptic depictions of the end. This is not necessarily exactly how things are going to unfold in the material world. Throughout the Bible. When the great day of the Lord and his judgment is described, it's described in ways that show our very created order unraveling. And that's what we have here. The truth is, as scary as these pictures are, the reality is a lot worse. God's people are, yes, protected from God's wrath. Right? Now, we'll talk about that in a minute, but let me just, let me just put a, a, maybe, maybe a, a finer sort of scripture reference point on it. Throughout the Bible, the people of God are said to be protected from the Son as a form of judgment. Old Testament, New Testament, let me give you a, an example. I mean, it says it in, in Revelation 7. We've already covered it there, but let me just go back to um, Isaiah 49, verse 10. And here, It says, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. And this is in the the context of Israel being restored while God brings judgment. It was temporal then, but here we're talking about in the very end. So yes, God's people are spared from God's wrath because someone has already taken that for us. Then we have the... uh, the fifth angel with the fifth bowl of wrath in verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You see the same thing happening again and again as God's wrath is manifested. Now in this case, we see that it is against the throne of the beast Now we have this this beast that rises up out of the land and in the previous vision, a beast that rises up out of the ocean. And the beast that we're talking about here is the beast that represents satanic operations and influences and work that manifest themselves in everything from specific social orders or or, or governments, any movement that is wicked and evil that, that oppresses, maligns, or afflicts. And most specifically, yes, anything that goes against the truth of God and his people. So this plague is directed against Satan's operations in all of its forms. And so we're not just talking about the toppling of earthly kingdoms, though that's going to be a part of it. We're talking about a spiritual kingdom being destroyed. A kingdom that is alive and well right now. And of course, again, in the midst of this, there is no repentance there is no seeking, there is, there is no sorrow, there is just bitterness and cursing against the God who is just. Then we have a sixth angel and a sixth bull in verses 12 through 16. It says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. In context, this is a, a river that essentially divided the east from the west. And it says, its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. This is a, this is a bit more of a complicated or, 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 or vague passage for us to make a lot of clear sense out of. So we'll, we'll be general here. The east and the west are divided by the river and now it's gone. And so now the eastern army can move. And some people think like, well, does that mean that the east and the west are going to be fighting? But most of the biblical scholars that I've read say, no, it's about the world's armies now uniting to fight against God and his people. That this is in some way a all-out satanic attack Against the truth, as they see judgment nearing, as they know that this is the end. The devil knows his time is up. And he says, Let's get as much done as we can, let's make as much damage as we can, let's let's go all out. He's not confused about the calendar. The devil knows the facts, he knows the scripture, he knows the basic plan. He just doesn't like it, he doesn't accept it. And so there is some kind of spiritual battle that intensifies in the end just before all of this wrath is poured out. And what's happening here is that God seems to be removing the restraints. I mean, in this world, God does restrain. There is, there is an active common grace by which God is kindly, kindly restraining some level of evil and wickedness in the world. But as we continue to read this, what does it say? And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth mouth of the false prophet. These are three characters that have been introduced, the dragon being the devil. Three characters that have been introduced in in earlier visions. And from their mouths this unholy trinity comes unclean spirits that are like frogs. No significance about the frogs. They're just gross. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So it's like restraints have been pulled off. Things are going to get worse. There will be a spiritual hostile opposition that will probably manifest itself in tangible worldly ways as well before Christ comes, before the judgment is complete. And then we have this statement from Christ in verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It's not a reference to nudity, it's a a reference to walking alertly in this world with devils filled, clothed both in the righteousness of Christ as we walk in his ways, living justly. Oh, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Lots of books and movies that are not worth your time focus on this one word, Armageddon. Let's just say for our purposes now, as we're, as we're just touching on that word, this concept's going to come into play as we continue, that what we're really talking about here is a place where both judgment and deliverance come together. This is the sixth the uh, bowl, the sixth angel that leads to, in the point out of God's wrath, we see this increase and intensification of spiritual warfare. And then there is the seventh angel and the seventh seal in verses 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was this earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great. To make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the end end. Mountains disappear. Islands flee. The great city was split into three parts. This means the city of man is utterly destroyed. Babylon, which represents the the ungodly uh, cities and kingdoms of the world, it's all coming to ruin. Judgment is finally coming in full effect. All because this angel, the seventh angel, pours out this bowl into the air. Now, there's two ways to take that. You can take this to mean the air, just like we have earth ocean, bodies of water. It could just mean air. Not that this is exactly what's going to happen, but you get the idea. If you take away all the life in the ocean, people are going to die. If you take away the air, everyone dies, and it happens rather quickly. This is quick, sudden, terrifying judgment. Or it might be a reference to the demonic realm, like Ephesians 2.2 refers to the devil as uh, the spirit of the air, the prince of the power of the air. Either way, the same point and conclusion is there for us to hold on to, that this judgment is final. It is complete. It is the end of creation as we know it, and it is the end of sin and hostility as we have seen it, and there will be no repentance. God's final judgment, the great day of judgment, is total, but it's also totally just and fair, and that's where we struggle. We struggle because on some level we don't really believe that we all deserve hell, that you deserve it, that your parents deserve it that your kids deserve it. It's uncomfortable, right? Ain't nobody like the doctrine of hell. I don't know, maybe somebody does. I don't like it. It's not like it doesn't make me feel warm at night. But if you understand what hell is and what God's judgment is, if you understand who God is, and we can begin to wrap our our arms around the reality that God is just and trustworthy in all that He does, and that His wrath is poured out in perfect measure for every individual, then we can see that it is good and it's what we appropriately deserve, so that when we get what we don't deserve and experience God's grace, we are overwhelmed with gratitude. Thus, the song of praise a song of praise with this third angel pouring out that third bowl. It's in verses four through seven. We're gonna go back there and this is what's gonna button it up for us. Here is this wonderful song, I'm gonna call it. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve and I even heard the altar saying yes Lord God the Almighty true and just are your judgments so just listen we are being reminded in the midst of reading about something that is going to happen that is terrifying and hard that God is just he is just in his person he does not conform to our conceptions of justice he is justice Our understanding of justice has to look to him to make sense of this world. He is just in his person. It means that he is just in all of his ways. And we see this this heralding of God's justice throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And the reason it is so often repeated is because he doesn't operate in the ways that we think he should. He doesn't conform. He's holy. And we aren't. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four, you can just listen. The rock, speaking of God, not Dwayne Johnson, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. just and upright is he. It's repeated again and again and again. It is one of the most often repeated phrases about God that he is just and he punishes sin and when he does so, he does so in righteousness, So God is just, it means his judgments are just. I mean, listen to Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Speaking of God saying he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The day of judgment, the final day, is when God judges And he judges the world in righteousness, not like us, where we play favorites. We know that somebody deserves an appropriate sentence, and maybe we lighten it because we like them. Or maybe we don't like somebody more than another, and we wish them to suffer even more greatly than what is appropriate because of our own hard hearts. God is not like us. And so the song says, no, listen, they deserve this. You brought these judgments. This is what they deserve. Why? Because they shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. In other words, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the world and to Israel. Repent of your sins. And here's the message of every prophet. Implicitly, this is the message. God's going to judge you unless you repent. Turn to the Lord and he will be gracious and kind to you. Confess your sins and trust in his mercy and he will forgive you and establish you. All the prophets say this. And how do we treat the prophets? The world and even Israel itself at times rejected the prophets, pulled out their beards, which by the way, if you've ever had that done, it's it, it is brutal. If you have a little kid and they start yanking on it, imagine. I mean, the prophets come to preach and they're literally tortured. Some of them are killed. When the prophet Jesus Christ shows up, what do they do? It's wholesale rejection, torture, and execution. Now, maybe you're thinking, like, okay, just as an aside, uh, what is, I can get that, and I think a lot of us can get that. We're all sinners. God's wrath is coming. People reject the offer of, of salvation through Christ. They're, if they reject that, they're going to be judged. But what if there are no prophets to hear? What about people that are in the world, but they don't have access to any revelation? Uh, what, what if there are people that, that never get to hear about Christ? And listen, those people exist in America even. I know you might think it's impossible, but I was 17 before I ever heard the gospel in my life. There are people that, that never hear it, but yes, we think like we go out into these places that are far away and remote and people have never heard the gospel. We think of some Muslim countries where people never hear the gospel. And what about them? They're not rejecting the prophets. So surely they're entitled to a pass. But let, let, me, let me affirm something for you. No one goes to hell for not believing in a Jesus they've never heard of. No one goes to hell for not accepting a gospel that's never been offered to them. But we are all going to hell because we have sinned against the holy God. And while there are many who have not rejected the gospel because they've never heard it, every human being that has come from Adam and Eve has rejected the God and his revelation in creation. And there is no exception to that rule. In Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What Paul is saying in Romans 1 is like, listen, no one's innocent. All are guilty, whether they've heard of Jesus or not, because we have all rejected God to a person. We've all rejected God. Whatever revelation we have access to, we say no thanks. We suppress it. That's our instinct. That's our natural sinful instinct. So no, no one escapes the judgment of God because they somehow are innocent. There is no one who is innocent. We all deserve hell. Now, let's be really clear here. The truth is not that the bad guys deserve hell and we deserve heaven. Let's be really clear, right? That's not the point. We all deserve hell and we only escape by the very grace of God. Do you remember the passage that we looked at during the Lord's Supper? Romans chapter three. There's no distinction, right? We're all going to hell. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what that means. We're all going to hell. But it doesn't stop there, does it? All have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, it means to satisfy. When Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied, he quenched God's wrath that is to come. He satisfied the wrath of God for all who believe. He takes away that condemnation and offers us peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, cleansing, and righteousness. We've all earned our spot in hell, but Jesus has taken our place as believers. That's the gospel, right? That's the good news that we champion, that we preach. So what are we supposed to do with this? In light of Revelation 16 that says judgment is coming, and it is a final judgment. And in this depiction, what we see again and again is that people continue to curse God and feel entitled because no one thinks that they deserve hell. Everyone thinks that someone else deserves hell. The Christian has a fundamental understanding that, no, 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 no. We're all going to hell. We're not singling out just the thieves. We're not singling out just the sexually immoral. We're all on that train. And if... There is any escape, it is only in God's grace, in His mercy. So, what do we do? How, how do we respond to this truth that yes, we all deserve hell, but God gives us something better? What we don't deserve mercy and every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here's what we should be doing. I'll just give us three things to sort of uh, look towards as we go about our weeks. Number one, we should rejoice. You wonder why you lack some joy in your salvation, not happiness. I'm not talking about worldly happiness in your life because I know a lot of you are going through some really dark times where you are afflicted, where you are in need, where you don't have answers to questions that you are desperately seeking. The world is dark. There's evil in the world that we have to deal with but there is a joy that transcends our circumstances that we can find. You see, it's the joy of salvation. We can rejoice for all that we have in Christ because we know what we deserve and we know what we're actually receiving, what we've already received. And rejoicing should lead us to worship, to singing, to proclamation. It should lead us to a joyful obedience to God. You can rejoice now because God has given you grace that you don't deserve and it secures you now and for eternity. Number two, in light of this principle that we all deserve hell, but in Christ, we get heaven. Heaven, not just in the future, but we taste it now on earth as the spirit dwells in us and transforms us continually, progressively to look more like our savior Secondly, is we should take courage because we, though we live in a world that opposes us and is dangerous in many ways. And yes, listen, it's a beautiful day. We're gonna, people are gonna hang out. Maybe you'll go to your, back to your house. Maybe you'll take a nap today. Uh, I'm gonna grab lunch with my boy, Riley Sadler, in the house visiting today. Uh, we're gonna go get lunch. You're not invited. And um, there's too many people, the table won't fit. Um, like there's good things, man. There's lots to enjoy and rejoice in, right? Like there's so many good things and, and, and it would be foolish and wrong and sinful if we didn't recognize them the world is also dark and evil and twisted and crooked and bleak. And it takes courage, right, to lift your head up and to actually face that stuff. We can do that because God is for us, because God is with us, because God is in us. All because Christ took our place on the cross and went through hell for us. Third, final thing, final encouragement. Since this is true, that we all deserve hell, But in Christ, we have heaven now in part and forever and and full in the future. We should be preachers of this gospel that saves. Every single one of us, every single one of us that has experienced this, who has come to this realization, I know what I deserve and now I see what I have received, you should be motivated. I should be compelled to tell others not as holier-than-thou saviors of other people ourselves. That's not what we are. We are fellow sinners who have found God's grace by God's grace. And now we get to tell others, this is the way home. This is the way to be made whole. You can have what you don't deserve and not get what you do deserve. You gotta wonder, why am I not telling other people about Jesus, why am I not sharing this message? I can only think of two reasons off the top of my head right now, um, and that would be that you don't love your neighbor, that's possible. I mean, if you did, why wouldn't you tell them that there is a way of escaping the judgment that they deserve to get what you have? Or, you don't believe that it's real. <laughs> Maybe in the moment, we just don't believe it's real. Maybe for a time, we're just kind of putting it out of our mind. But if, if we embrace this, this principle, we deserve hell, and yet God loves us anyway. We deserve hell, not because we're all entirely, totally bad in every single way. We're still made in God's image. We're still God's creation. We still have worth and value and dignity but our hearts and our wills have been so bent against God that we have sinned and incurred his judgment. So let me let me leave you with this last verse as we're encouraged to go out into a world that's going to come to an end and give way to a new earth, a new heaven that is not subject to temptation or failure. There will be no wickedness. There will be no oppression. There will be no injustice. There will only be the Lord and his people and peace and his justice. Last verses from James chapter 4, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. I would encourage you the God that will destroy is the God that will save if you embrace his son Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us more than we can learn in a 40-minute uh, rambling sermon. We pray, God, that you would teach us more than, than we can put together in a, an hour and a half of worshiping together. God, we need your spirit to teach us your word so that we know you more fully, more deeply. Lord, we want to be people who hate what you hate and love what you love. We We want to be prepared for the life that you've given us. So Lord, would you teach us, lead us, and unite us around the savior that saves us. In his name we pray, amen.